Good morning. Have you heard of the website, the Babylon Bee? Has anyone heard of this? It's a. Am I not on? I'm being waved at. Oh, children's church. There's children's church now. Downstairs, ages two to five. I almost pulled a Darren. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, the Babylon Bee is a satirical news site, uh, and it's in the same vein as other joke news sites that you might see pop up sometimes on Facebook, like uh, The Onion, or The Beaverton, or The Daily Bonnet, uh, but it's got a focus on church and Christianity, and the majority of articles, I think, are written by Christians, uh, but it's meant to be sort of a light-hearted poke at some of the quirks of, of church and of, and of Christianity, uh, and some of my favorite article headlines include churches to use Hunger Games footage as training for VBS volunteers. <laughs> Scholars find a day is like a thousand years actually a reference to church membership meetings. <laughs> and power of God enables drummers to play at a reasonable volume. The article I'm going to touch on today is called Desperate for Sermon Illustration, Local Pastor Spends Time with His Kids. <laughs> it reads like this. Bakersfield, California, after exhausting every prepackaged sermon guide and abridged commentary at his disposal, local pastor Brian Peterson reportedly found himself forced to do something highly unusual. Frustrated and left with nothing to lose, Peterson asked his two children, Matthew, seven, and Junior, five, if they wanted to go outside and throw a ball or whatever, in hopes that the quality time would yield nuggets of wisdom or pithy observations he could use to pad out his 25-minute Sunday sermon. Hey, Junior, do you have anything cute to say about the sunset or God's love or something? The minister prodded as the three idly tossed an oversized foam ball around their yard. When the two boys only wanted to talk about Minecraft and crack nonsensical jokes about farting, Peterson grew visibly irritated and stormed inside, opting instead to browse DesiringGod.org for a John Piper sermon from the 90s to rip off. As the boys' bedtime approached, Peterson reportedly resigned himself to a last-ditch effort of reading the Chronicles of Narnia to his children, who unhelpfully offered no humorous commentary or innocently charming insights into C.S. Lewis's Christian allegories. Why do pastors so often go to their children for analogies and observations? This article is funny because it hits on a pretty universal truth. Pastors love to talk about their kids from the pulpit. My grandpa, who was a pastor, had a policy that whenever he spoke, if he used his children as an example, as compensation for their embarrassment, they got a dollar. And I'm pretty sure that my dad made good money off of that arrangement. <laughs> there is something about children that can open our eyes to a different way of looking at things. Jesus understood this too. Several times in Scripture, we see Jesus recognizing little children as being special when it comes to God. And we read some of those verses already today. I'm going to read them again. In Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4, it reads like this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
He called a little child to him, and placing the child among them, he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is a really interesting teaching from Jesus that can get pretty easily misinterpreted. Jesus tells his followers to become like little children, but what does that really mean? What is the practical change that we are supposed to make in our lives based on that advice? If we take it at face value, it can be easy to stretch the analogy too far or pick up the wrong message from it. After all, I've seen Sebastian eat a meal of spaghetti in the aftermath of the dining room. Is God calling me to live like that? To flip my plate and spill my milk and smear my hair with tomato sauce when I go to a restaurant? I doubt it. And all of us have seen a child or someone else's have a meltdown in a public place like a grocery store. A child sees a candy or a toy that they want, and when they realize they're not getting it, they erupt, screaming, flailing, refusal to move, tears and anger. Is Jesus calling us to be emotionally volatile, to lash out when we don't get what we want? I think it's pretty safe to say no. Likewise, I think this verse is sometimes taken to mean that we should have blind faith. People sometimes use this verse to support a sort of uh, anti-intellectualism. Uh, this idea that people out there are proud to use this verse to demonstrate that they don't have to research, they don't have to learn, they don't have to understand more about the world around them. Christians sometimes argue that this verse supports a view that they don't have to figure things out, they don't have to ask questions, they just have to trust. Trust is important, and I do believe it's part of what Jesus is calling us to here, but I don't think that this verse supports blind, unquestioning, unthinking trust. First of all, I don't think there is any group of people in the world that ask more questions than young children, constantly asking why. Children have a thirst to learn and experience more of the world around them, to be able to process what is going on and to understand how things work and the reasons behind what they are seeing or experiencing. The constant whys can be enough to try the patience of even the most calm and even-keeled adults. And second, I think it's clear that there are many childish things that Jesus is not calling us to here, and so we have to be careful about what we read into or assume with this text. And when a passage in the Bible is vague or difficult to interpret or understand, the best tool that we have to get clarity is to start looking at other passages of Scripture. After all, all Scripture is God-breathed. And so when we start looking at other references to children, it can help us understand better what Jesus was talking about here when he says to become like a little child. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20, for example, says... Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Here we are clearly not being called to blind trust. We are supposed to think and process and be rational. Paul here is calling us to be infants when it comes to evil. He doesn't want us to aspire to the foolishness or the ignorance of a child. He wants us to aspire to the innocence of a child. Ephesians 4.14 also speaks to childish things that we are not called to. 
saying, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. To simply trust without discernment is to fall victim to every person who comes our way trying to sell us a new version of the truth. One of my grandma's favorite lines is, it's essential to keep an open mind, but never so open that your brain falls out. (laughs) It seems clear to me looking at these scriptures that Jesus is not calling for blind faith or trust without wisdom or discernment. So then what is Jesus calling us to here? Well, let me tell you a story about my son. A few months ago, we were at my grandma's house with Sebastian. She has an old collection of encyclopedias, nearly two dozen books, books that I remember spending hours poring over as a child, but now they were serving as a booster seat for Sebastian at supper. When Sebastian was done eating, he ran off to play, and he really enjoys stacking things and organizing piles, and so he began to carefully carry these books one by one from the chair over to a different stack. Keep in mind, these were big, heavy, hardcover books, and as he got to a particularly large one, you could see him strain a little bit under the weight, but unafraid, he picked up the book and began walking to the pile. About halfway there, he couldn't hold it anymore, and he dropped it, corner first, right on his foot. He cried for a little bit, but was fairly quickly back to playing, and Aaron and I didn't think much of it until the next day. That morning, we went to work and left Sebastian with the babysitter. And when we got home, she mentioned that he had been surprisingly clingy, wanting to be held more than usual. That was strange, as he's constantly running around. We looked at his foot, which was now fairly swollen, and figured he must have just bruised it pretty badly, but we still weren't concerned. After all, he was still hobbling around a few steps here and there. Still to be safe, we took him into emergency. One test led to another, and after some x-rays, the doctors determined that he had broken two bones in his foot and would require a cast. Many of you will remember the bright green cast he wore on his legs for a few weeks earlier this year. And what is really interesting to me, and this is where the analogy begins to show up, is to think about this whole incident from Sebastian's perspective. You see, if he had been older, I could have sat down and explained to him what was happening. I could have told him, your foot is hurt, and we want to make sure everything is good, so we're taking you to see a doctor. And in the doctor's office, I could have said, he's poking your foot because he wants to understand what is wrong. And at the radiologist, I could have said, we're putting this lead vest over you to protect you from the x-rays. And at the children's hospital, I could have said, you have two broken bones in your foot, and to allow them to heal properly and protect them, we have to put a cast on. And when we got home, I could have said, this cast can't get too wet or too dirty, otherwise it could cause problems with the healing process and we'll have to go in and get a new cast. But Sebastian is a year and a half. He doesn't know what a skeleton is, let alone a bone. He doesn't know what sort of healing time to expect for his foot. He doesn't understand why suddenly when the cast is on, he can't run around outside in the mud, he can't take regular baths, he can't go swimming. He can't possibly understand any of this. But he knows us. He knows Aaron and me. And he has a close enough relationship with Aaron and me to know in his one-and-a-half-year-old way that we love him deeply, that we want what's best for him. And so this entire process went through with him trusting us. 
He couldn't possibly have understood what was happening or why it was happening, but he trusted us because he knew that we were good, that we understood more than he did, and that we wanted what was best for him. And more than in just this example, Sebastian lives a life with this incredible combination of trust and wonder and discovery. When we go outside, every kitten is an incredible excitement. Every dandelion is a beautiful flower worth stopping to ponder. Every pebble in the road deserves to be analyzed and looked at. Every passing truck is worth jumping up and down over. Sebastian is grounded in simple truths that we love him, that we understand more than him, that we have his best interests at heart. And those truths give him a confidence and stability. And from that, it is so cool to watch him explore the rest of the world as a place that is filled with magic, full of wonder and opportunity and excitement and creativity where anything could be around the next corner. I am currently reading a book by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy. Now, G.K. Chesterton might not be a name that you are all familiar with, so let me just say this. Many of us have grown up exposed to the works of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is considered to be in the top tier of important Christian thinkers and theologians, both through his fictional works like the Chronicles of Narnia and through his non-fiction, books like The Great Divorce and Mere Christianity. He is widely respected and loved, even by non-Christians, and I have been deeply impacted by the writings of C.S. Lewis in my own faith journey. I think it's fair to say that G.K. Chesterton was C.S. Lewis's C.S. Lewis. In fact, he was the man who C.S. Lewis credits with kickstarting his journey from atheism to Christianity. And in this book, Orthodoxy, Chesterton has much to say on the nature of childlike faith and wonder. And I am loving this book. As we sit in our office together, Michael has already probably gotten tired of me stopping him to read out a quote or a paragraph that I come across. Throughout Orthodoxy, Chesterton remains deeply critical of thinking about the world too logically, instead encouraging a childlike wonder and amazement at creation and at God. Early on, contrasting the strain of logic against the freedom of poetry and mystery, he writes this, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens, it is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. When I look at Sebastian, I see someone who has their head in the heavens. As adults, there is a pressure or a temptation to make God smaller, to make God understandable, to boil him down to a list of rules or characteristics that we can fit in a tract, a God that can fit into our own understanding can only be the size of our own heads. He is shrunk down to the limits of our imaginations. And by making him small, we either begin worshipping a very small God, or as Chesterton says, we end up splitting our own heads in an attempt to contain him. In Isaiah, an infinite creator God speaks, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
To Sebastian, the world is a magical, mysterious place filled with fantasy and awe and strange beauty and incomprehensibility. As adults, Chesterton argues, if we can let go of the need to comprehend, of the need to understand, the world suddenly explodes and expands, and so does God. As I began speaking about becoming more childlike in our faith, some of you may have thought of the ending verses in 1 Corinthians 13, which tell us to put childish things behind us and become men and women of God. I love C.S. Lewis's take on this. He says, To be concerned about growing up, to admire the grown-up simply because it is grown-up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these things are the mark of childhood and adolescence. And in childhood and adolescence, they are, in moderation, healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow. But to carry on into middle life, or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult is really a mark of arrested development. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had found out to be doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the very desire to appear grown up. I love that. A part of maturing as Christians involves not fearing a little childishness. I think it's a part of living in this upside-down kingdom of God. Here, spiritual maturity can look like David, dancing undignified in the streets of Jerusalem in Jesus' presence. Giddy as a three-year-old at Christmas, celebrating in the present and presence of God. And as we put away the fear of childishness, as we learn to embrace the humility and awe that I think Jesus is referencing when he asks us to become little children, creation transforms in front of our eyes. I'm going to read a chunk of Isaiah 40, and as we listen to these words, I encourage you to hear this with childlike wonder and with smallness and with awe. God is not something to be understood or comprehended, so I want you with me to put your heads into the heavens for a little bit as we read. This is Isaiah 40, starting at verse 18. So who even comes close to being like God? To whom or what can you compare him? Some no-God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold and draped with silver. Or perhaps someone will select a fine wood. Olive wood, say, that won't rot. Then hire a wood carver to make a no-God, giving special care to its base so it won't tip over. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the round ball of earth. The people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas. Yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't amount to much. Like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted, they shrivel when God blows on them. Like flecks of chaff, they're gone with the wind. So who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says the holy? Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches the army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name? So magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one. 
Why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine, Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Don't you know anything? Haven't you been listening? God doesn't come and go. God lasts. He's creator of all you can see or imagine. He doesn't get tired out, doesn't pause to catch his breath, and he knows everything, inside and out. He energizes those who get tired, gives fresh strength to dropouts, for even young people tire and drop out. Young folk in their prime stumble and fall, but those who wait upon God get fresh strength. They spread their wings and soar like eagles. They run and don't get tired. They walk and don't lag behind. As we learn to let go of the reins, not to blind trust or to thoughtlessness, but to a wonder and awe rooted in the truth of God's love for us, suddenly life is bursting forth around every corner. Suddenly you see God everywhere. Suddenly miracles are possible again, and actually suddenly everything is a miracle. Chesterton speaks about scientists and philosophers as having minds that are too small. They have reduced everything to simple cause and effect, foolishly thinking that with their limited view of the world, they have it all figured out. He argues that we are doing ourselves a disservice by assuming that we understand how the world works, that assuming that we know that an egg will eventually become a chicken simply because we've seen it before. He approaches the natural world with a childlike energy, seeing the miracle in everything, even the repetition. He writes, A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence, of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he is an eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. So as we go from here, I want to push you to strive for a childlike faith, to see the world as full of wonder and magic, Rest deeply in the truth of God's love for us, in the power of Jesus' death on the cross. But don't be so worried about trying to understand or to rationalize or to explain. Like a child, allow yourself to bask in the beautiful repetition of life, recognizing each sunrise and sunset as a new and exciting act of an all-powerful creator God. Together, let's make the effort to see every daisy as a new expression of joy from a Savior whose creativity knows no bounds and whose love and grace for us stretch farther than we can imagine. We worship a God who is deeply and actively involved in our stories, and rather than trying to get the heavens into our head, let us take on the humility and the awe of a child and try and get our heads into the heavens. Amen. Amen.